I am Joel McLeod. I'm Roland Tanner. And welcome to the 905er. Listeners of this podcast will remember a while back we had on Flavio Volpe of the Automotive Parts Manufacturer Association to discuss their endeavor, Project Arrow. As the automotive industry is a major player in the 905, we wanted to talk about how this initiative would help transform the sector for the 21st century and keep the industry strong as it shifts to EV platforms. We had stayed on top of it, and we had wanted to give him a chance to come on and give us an update on how this project was evolving. However, instead, the truck convoy of February shut down Ottawa and then proceeded to blockade the Ambassador Bridge, shutting down most of the auto industry in the 905 in Ontario. Hundreds of millions of dollars were prevented from crossing the bridge, and major companies in the region were forced to shut down lines and furlough workers. One of them was the Ford plant here in the 905 region. While our governments were paralyzed with inaction, Flavio and the APMA took action. They went to court to get an injunction against the blockades to get the police in, to break up the blockade, and to get commerce flowing again across the bridge. Needless to say, the story we were going to discuss with Flavio had changed. We invited him on to again discuss Project Arrow, but this time it took on a different meaning. We wanted to ask, what is the mood in the automotive industry on both sides of the border right now? What is Canada's reputation at the moment with our largest trading partner? What were the ripple effects throughout the industry because of the blockades? And has Project Arrow taken on new significance in light of this new dynamic? These were some of the questions we wanted to learn from Fabio, and we asked them today on asked them on today's episode. Now, if you enjoy this podcast, we invite you to support us through our Patreon and Buy Me a Coffee accounts. Your small donation will go a long way to help keeping us going and helping us to keep telling the stories and talking with the issues like this and the importance that they play to the 905 region. Links to support us are in the show notes. Please enjoy. Okay, well, I'd like to welcome back for a second uh, step up to the mound on the 905 podcast, uh, Flavio Volpe, who is the president of the APMA Auto Parts Manufacturer Association uh, here in Canada. And Flavio, you've had quite the month, it seems, and, and, and it's not entirely your own your own making. <laughs> right. Right. It, I, look, first of all, uh, any... any uh, any interview that starts with a baseball analogy is going to go well. So appreciate it. <laughs> hey, there, there we go. Yeah. Yeah. We're almost, we're almost in the spring training. So there we go. Um, yeah. Originally, we wanted to have you on because we wanted to, uh, again, follow up on Project Arrow. We, we had you on uh, previously to talk about that exciting in, endeavor and how that might help transform the Canadian automotive industry into the 21st century, what it needs to be for the 21st century. And we wanted to, well, let's start off there. Like, can you just give us an update on what you guys have been up to, how it's progressing, and, and sure. what have you? So, you know, first thing I'll do is draw attention to your audience uh, to projectarrow.ca where we uploaded uh, just a few weeks ago the final set design uh, for um, the vehicle. Uh, you, you may remember that we held the design competition uh, with a whole bunch of submissions from, from post-secondary uh, students across the country. Uh, and we picked one from uh, Carleton University, a team from Carleton University's industrial design. Beautiful. I mean, I, it, was, it was the right winner. 
and it was a very popular choice. Uh, but, you know, we're building a vehicle to 2025 uh, motor vehicle safety standards. So we had to take that rendering and we had to turn around and apply um, some of the dynamics of uh, engineering and design uh, regulations for series production. And so so we released the final rendering. It was, uh, was in the Toronto Star a few weeks ago and the, and the images are up. Uh, it's an important step. You know, when you turn around and say, look, we're, we're not building a science project. We're, we want to feature uh, existing parts and systems companies' uh, products to all the automakers in the world. And so so we're doing something very unique. We're putting it in a vehicle that rolls rather than on a PowerPoint. And then um, all those parts, you know, we, we used a filter that um, we said, we're going to build this car as if it was going to go into series production. What are some of the the the, the materials decisions, some of the, s- the systems decisions you would make if you were building a car that you would produce fifty thousand of in a year, and that the price is somewhere between forty and sixty thousand, depending on options. So that's what that new rendering is a reflection of. Um, and it is you'll see the vehicle in uh, December of this year. Uh, one of the things I'm very proud of is that we partnered with Ontario Tech University. And for for people who don't know what that is, it's a fantastic university in Oshawa that has um, the ACE Center. It has one of the, the best uh, f- uh, uh, full climate spectrum um, uh, wind tunnels used by General Motors, Magna, Multimatic, a whole bunch of other autom- automotive companies, uh, a whole bunch of automotive companies I can't talk about that use that space. And we convinced that team to be our build partner. Um, John and Paula over there, uh, who you all get to know over the over the next six months or so, are working together with Fraser, who's uh, who we recruited from Aston Martin, was the chief engineer there, who will be putting that car together in Oshawa, over the course of the summer uh, and into the fall. This is a fully functioning uh, prototype. Uh, It's not a clay model. It's not a science experiment. Uh, And right now we're in a phase where we have uh, secured the supplier partnerships, set the engineering, and about 50 companies that will be making parts and systems have started to make those parts and systems. So if you can imagine 50 different sources that then end up at OTU and OTU puts together that uh, that uh, jigsaw puzzle and away we go. Um, I mean, it, it's great to hear there's the the variety of, of different companies that, that you mentioned. If, you know, 50 is a sizable part of the economy. I, I would be remiss. Part of the also reason why we wanted to have you on here was was because the last month, I think, kind of in my mind, it changed a bit of the angle of of the or the importance of the, of this project. Now, in case uh, any of our listeners have been hiding underneath a rock, you may have realized that there was many disruptions in Ottawa and along the borders, uh, particularly <laughs> the, the the Windsor uh, uh, Bridge. Which, correct me if I'm wrong, five hundred million dollars worth of trade was interrupted uh, because of the blockades that happened there, and you played a big role in in lifting that getting the injunction to, to, to remove the, the protesters and remove the blockade and get the trucks flowing again. So I guess on, on behalf of a lot of Canadians, thank you, because you stepped up when it seemed that some of our, our government officials did not. So that's just me editorializing. But what I wanted to bring up is there seems to be a real fear, I think, in the Canadian, not only automotive sector, but the Canadian economy as, as well, that Canada has lost a bit of its luster as a reliable place to do business and a reliable trading partner. 
that we allowed this to happen. Uh, people are going to remember Ford had to close a shift because they lot they didn't have the parts to to open to to run the shift. Maybe can you give us a, a you're you're closer to the to the automotive industry than any of us are. Can you maybe give us a, a sense of is that is that fear exi- existing or is that something made up in the in the media for the small those small parts manufacturers uh, in the in Ontario? Well, I think you've got it right, and I think you're also being conservative about the impact. Yeah, there was $500 million, we think. So five production days of automotive parts were halted. Uh, there was probably another $500 million worth of vehicle production that was halted. It was about $3 billion worth of goods that did not um, did not uh, either get produced or moved in the overall economy uh, because of that specific blockage. Uh, Ford had uh, shift reductions and uh, in some cases closures. Uh, Toyota closed everything. Uh, General Motors had closures and uh, uh, shift cuts. Uh, Stellantis had uh, closures. Uh, Honda had shifts cut. Now, what happens, uh, Joel, is that, as you know, these car assembly plants are the jigsaw puzzle plants. 75% of the of the vehicle comes from parts companies. So if Toyota's not making cars today, it's not ordering parts today. We work in a just-in-time environment the auto business around the world, uh, everything's sequenced. Are we going to make a thousand RAV4s today? And if we are, we need 4,000 seats. And if those 4,000 seats come from um, uh, a company called Bushuku uh, in uh, Haldeman County, well, if they're not building the RAV4s, you're not making those seats and you're not stacking them. We don't warehouse. Maybe we work on a 24-hour inventory, but you can shut down the industry in a day. And I think you know, in in the case of the Windsor blockade, which I mean, if I'm if I'm candid, really kind of pissed me off, uh, was we've got about thirty people in in pickup trucks. I saw Hyundai Tucson there, uh, with guys getting interviewed saying he's a trucker. Well, that, where's your truck? The trucks that I know pick up a hundred million dollars worth of parts a day, um, and they shut that bridge down. You know, I mean, in fairness to Windsor Police Services, put them in a real weird position. It's you're there to serve and protect. And, and we don't know, uh, you know, uh, what these people were capable of doing. So they're keeping the peace, the police, while they're looking for direction. In that looking for direction, those people know exactly what they were doing. What they were doing was trying to shut down production. 140,000 people on this side of that bridge work in automotive, and they were absolutely affected. They either were, were temporarily, temporarily furloughed or they lost hours. Uh, over the course of a week, and exactly the same amount on the other side. You know, there was a Toyota plant shut down in Kentucky. There was a series of big three, Detroit three plants shut down in Michigan, Indiana, Ohio. And it goes to the point of what you're saying. You know, um, in a in a just-in-time world where a border, which is important, a border runs between Ontario, Quebec, and um, Michigan, New York, Pennsylvania, uh, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, can we be a reliable partner? Now, we have been for the last 120 years, and that border, that, that bridge and that border did get shut on 9-11, but that was a country through a national security uh, event shut down. And, and so I go back and forth to Washington all the time. I, I haven't dared to show my face in the last two weeks, but I'm going to have to go back there, and I'll probably go next week. And I say to people that the challenge will be to explain that that was a case study and not a cancer. 
What did we learn? We learned that 30 people pick up trucks can shut down a border and that they can paralyze the police force because the police force is not the guarantor of international trade, they're guarantor of peace. And that, but also a private sector group like ours, supported by the vehicle manufacturers, could go to the judicial system, get clarity on what those damages are and what the emergency is, and give that clarity to the police force to clear that. Is it a cancer? That's a question we all kind of need to ask here. Um, if we don't have a good answer on that, then the next time Toyota, Honda, General Motors, Ford, Chrysler have to go to head office and say, uh, Stellantis, sorry, go to head office and say, uh, Ontario is a great place to make cars. Head office is going to say, explain to me if those cars can get over that border. De-risk that argument for me. And we better have a good answer. Honestly, I'm not sure what it is right now. I mean, no, we can't ask you to sort of comment on party political stuff because you work with government and whichever government's in power, you're going to work with them. Yep. However, I mean, the, the, we're in a strange position these days where, where the where, where the what used to always be considered or what always used to brand itself as the party of business uh, contains within it people who, who were you know, openly either supportive or very sympathetic to these demonstrations. Um, what do you, I mean, I'm trying to put, ask you this in, in a way that that's reasonable for you to answer. <laughs> um, you know, yeah, I mean, what kind of message does this send? And I guess the message is kind of obvious, but, but, you know, how do we counter this and get, you know, <laughs> you know the party of so-called business back to being a party of so-called business? The problem with that party and, and, and Roland, I appreciate that you've, that you, you worry about my sensitivity here, but I'll tell you, I'll, I'll be rather candid. I'm not terribly sensitive about these things. There's a picture on my wall here of me with Stephen Harper with a warm note from him. There's one with me with Justin Trudeau, and I worked with Kathleen Wynne, and I worked with with uh, Doug Ford. The, the, the role of the official opposition at either level of government is to be a credible government in waiting. And what that does for the service of Canadian society or Ontario society or Quebec society is... It causes for the government to pause and think closely about what it's going to do next, especially in a minority government, how it responds to emergencies, uh, what it's responsible for, um, how it communicates its priorities to uh, citizens. When you have a leaderless party right now, as we do uh, with the conservatives, and you have, um, I, I think, to some degree, some shameless leadership candidates who stoked the fire in an effort to sign up members so that they could win a leadership for a party that couldn't possibly win an election with you at the helm. We had kind of a perfect storm where, you know, we had people who like uh, people who were hobnobbing with um, illegal blockaders and protesters while the government was contemplating the first use ever of this emergency act when what what i think normal people expect canadians expect would be for that that government in waiting to be taking the government to task on why did you take so long to respond what calculations were you making explain to me if you don't if the if the if the if elected government officials don't command the police force, which is not what we do in this country, okay, then what influence do you have on whether the police enforce the law? Why does a private sector party have to go uh, seek an injunction in court to give clarity to a police force 
And I'm telling you that I think that we might have had different answers in Ottawa, yeah. or we would have had earlier answers. And the problem with the grandstanding bullshit that we've seen from some conservative candidates for leadership or the interim leader is that they didn't hold the government to task. And and in in times of emergency in this country, we have a history of rallying around each other at a common cause. What they did was they gave they platformed an illegitimate cause, which is the cause to block highways and siege cities, even if the protest and the positions are legitimate. Hey, listen, people feel very strongly sometimes about things that are very contrary to others. Great. Go on Parliament Hill, uh, protest, do anything. Civil disobedience, civil disruption. Yes. Okay. But what we saw was somebody platforming the type of illegal activity that then caused for a $3 billion loss and a, and a, and a mark on our reputation in Windsor. And it's unacceptable. I'll, I'll, I'll just bring everybody's attention back to the March, 2020, April, 2020, when we all thought the world was falling apart. And in fact, the world was falling apart. Every single country in the world rallied to the same point of like, we don't know how to deal with this, shut everything down while we figure it out. The conservative premier of Ontario was working closely with the liberal uh, prime minister of Canada, and his buddy was the deputy prime minister, and they talked about that opening openly. The auto industry pivoted and said, we'll make the PPEs and the ventilators you need. Don't worry about purchase orders. We're going to... I had a front row seat to working with both levels of government in a moment of crisis to take care of what is um, a common cause. That's what was missing, in, especially at the Ottawa blockades. Uh, that's what was missing at some of the border blockades. And the government, both levels of government, have to do a real hard look at what decisions they made. But a lot of that responsibility also sits on the government in waiting that refused to do its job. That there's, I mean, just as a quick follow up to that, I mean, obviously our attention has been very much on Ottawa and on the federal situation. But you know, the the the, the primary uh, law enforcement in Ontario is the OPP. Yeah. Um, and you know, we can talk about the Ottawa Police and all kinds of other things, but ultimately, it seemed to be very slow. Things are very slow to get going uh, everywhere, and like you say, that the, the uh, I mean, do, do you do you see that as also a kind of failure of the of the province and the and the province being sort of being reluctant to talk to the federal government where they weren't, as you you mentioned very uh, well, as they weren't in the spring of twenty twenty. So, I mean, here, here, let me give you a little bit of behind the veil because. I find myself there sometimes. I know the prime minister's office and the premier's office were talking. And in spite of the, all the discussions that, or all the, the, the rumors that were reported on, he refused or he refused or he refused. I think they're both were gripped with a bit of paralysis. And um, when they look at the way law enforcement, uh, what the dominoes are that fall here is, look, the municipal law enforcement is in place in places uh, sorry, in places where you have municipal law enforcement, that's the primary agency. In places where there aren't, the OPP fills in, and in, in provinces where there isn't a provincial force, the RCMP fills in. It, the paralysis was, how do we, as a government, go to, uh, sorry, get the, the municipalities to enforce the provincial laws and the federal laws that are on the books if we can't direct them. And then I think they also, I did say, you know, there's that famous Spider-Man meme where every, like you got the various Spider-Men pointing <laughs> at themselves. <laughs> like, okay, hold on. Who's going to make the first move here? Cause if it blows up in our face and I'm going to own it, even though the ownership is Ottawa police, 
and the city of Ottawa or Windsor police and the city of Windsor. I, I think that there was, there are, there were failures both at the province and the federal government of saying, of failing to understand that uh, regular people don't understand jurisdiction. They don't care about jurisdiction. They may respect the law, uh, but they'll say, look, I bet you if the premier said, go get it done, or the prime minister said, go get it done, it would have gotten done, or they would have heard that resolve and it would have gotten done faster. I'll tell you what happened with the premier. I spoke to the premier on day one of the Windsor blockades, and he said, um, without betraying any confidences, we're going to get it done. Well, we just moved a little quicker. We just, I, we couldn't do more than a day. We went into court. And a little known fact is that the Attorney General of Ontario joined as an intervener. And I thought, okay, well, that's a really good step. Now we turned and said, I represent probably a dozen companies in Ottawa. Do I need to go to Ottawa and get a court injunction? And so we spoke to officials in Ottawa and said, would that help the plan? Like, well, it wouldn't hurt it. And so we were preparing to do the same thing in Ottawa. And then the federal government came down decisively with the Emergencies Act, and we said, okay, look, let's back off. I think in Ottawa, normal people, Joel, mm-hmm. said, how do we get two weeks of that before we did it? And I don't know what the answer is because I'm asking the same questions. Uh, I wanted to bring it back to the private sector, um, and I, I have two questions about that because uh, we're now dealing with the aftermath of a month of paralysis in the in the province. Um, you're closer to you know the, these major players for Toyota GM Stellantis uh, etc in the in the province uh, than any of us can you tell us maybe what's their what's their viewpoint now of Ontario and you know we'll, I'll throw even Quebec uh, and, and BC in there as well I know they have some uh, some players some manufacturing in there as well what, what's their view on on us? Right now, are, are they are they confident that they that they're making the right investment? Or are they starting to get some cold feet and wondering about pulling out uh, any major investments down the line? Somewhere in the middle, I'll tell you. No one's going to pull out an investment that's currently, you know, if you have a two billion dollar plant that's currently making three hundred thousand cars a year, that that goes unchanged. Um, but you're also not terribly confident with what you saw happen. Those companies, the most important people in those companies for us are the Canadians who run the Canadian divisions. So they're the biggest champions or the canaries in the mine for headquarters in Detroit or headquarters in Tokyo. Uh, I spent a good deal of time talking to those Canadians, especially in addition to some of their, uh, some of the people in those other two capitals, they've all expressed more or less the same thing that I have, which is got to keep your head down at head office for the next little while as we shake this out, as we, as we do a proper um, analysis, a post-op of what happened. And can we explain it at head office as a case study? And uh, there's a Canadian Vehicle Manufacturers Association uh, led by a really great guy, Brian Kingston, who you've probably heard from. Um, that's the three American companies. And then David Adams, who runs the Global Automakers in Canada, uh, they have 14 members, 12 of which import cars here, but two manufacture here. Well, they both stepped up for that injunction as well, and they came in as interveners with us. And so they have the credit within their companies to, to be able to say to Tokyo and to Detroit, um, the Canadian entities of those automakers were able to affect a very quick enforcement of the law in Windsor, especially when you compare it to Ottawa. I think if we have the same kind of disruption in the U.S., and I think there's been some threats of it, if it happens in the U.S. as well, first of all, nobody wants it to happen. But if it does happen, 
Or if in the post-op we start to draw parallels between this and you know the January 6th insurrection in, in Washington, um, with a little bit of distance in the rearview mirror, we'll be able to say, look, we're not immune to the craziness. Uh, you know, whatever happened in Ottawa, great, but but we handled it in in Windsor, and it it shouldn't be too bad. But any investment that's hanging in the balance right now, mm-hmm. if I'm going to put a battery plant in Windsor or Detroit, and the answer has to come tomorrow. Guess what? It's going to Detroit. On on that note, uh, I want to kind of bring this conversation back full circle back to Project Arrow. Yeah. And I'm w- wondering, f- in light of the last month, uh, has Project Arrow taken on a new meaning or new level of importance to prove to the world that Canada is where cars of the future are going or should and ought to be made? You know, I have a bias there and a, a certain conflict of interest. I'll take you back two months rather than one month. You will sure. go back two months and we'll say, I said the biggest existential threat that we had was President Joe Biden's Build Back Better bill included a clause that said, we'll give out $12,500 to any EV purchaser in the U.S. as long as they buy a car that was made, EV that was made in the U.S. And I said, well, we export 80% of the cars we make here. That'll kill us. We worked really hard uh, to get them to drop that. And by the way, they didn't drop it. And we worked really hard. Um, You know, in that month, I had 10 congressional congressional or senatorial meetings, meeting with senators from auto states and, 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 and congressional reps too, and trying to get them to understand how, how, how bad a policy this was for American automotive. You want to compete with China? Uh, picture Canada as your right leg. You're not going to shoot yourself in the right leg and then go to a fight with China. Uh, pull us in the tent. Um, one senator from West Virginia, a Democrat, changed his voting intention. They dropped it. Are they going to come back to it? Probably. We're going to have to figure that part out. Hopefully, they don't come back to it too soon because we've got this other stuff hanging overhead. But it raises the question, how does Canada respond? And a lot of proposals, including one of mine, which is, hey, by the way, we already have incentives here, federal ones. We have provincial ones everywhere but Ontario and Manitoba. Why don't we put together a matching program and then tell the Americans, we'll do the same thing for you. Or use the new USMCA as the filter. Look, if you follow the proposal of that tax credit, it's only 50% local local sourcing, the USMCA 75, don't shoot yourself in the foot. Or does that also make it more important that we have um, a Canadian OEM or Canadian OEMs, cars made and produced in Canada, engineered and designed in Canada, sold to Canadians? It That doesn't work in a normal world. We have to have US market access. We have to make cars here because we don't have a big enough pull market. But it certainly does bolster the hope and the ideas of a Canadian uh, automaker cluster, which is one of the things, one of the key objectives of Project Arrow is, well, I'm not going to do any shortcuts. We're going to go right to America, uh, to Canadian uh, motor vehicle safety standards for 2025 model year. And my notebook is going to be available to those people's, people like Roland, who wants to build the Roland GTS or the Roland. That's a nice CV, idea. Isn't it? <laughs> isn't it? Although I, I wouldn't trust you with the design of it, Ro- but I certainly <laughs> the vision roll, on it. Rolling in your Roland. That'd be yeah. uh, <laughs> your marketing pitch. Exactly. There's no reason why we can't be a little bit like Silicon Valley. We are the second biggest IT cluster in North America. We are the second or first uh, subnational jurisdiction for automotive manufacturing, depending on the year between Ontario and Michigan. We're the global the 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 global center of AI and machine learning and AI in Toronto, machine learning in Montreal. We've got all the natural resources to turn into to cells and batteries here. We we here's the analogy: we have all of the ingredients for a wonderful meal. 
maybe a five-star uh, a restaurant meal. But you need a chef to run that kitchen who understands how to take all these raw materials and turn it into something really special. Do we have that? I don't know. I'm hoping that Project Arrow is a recipe that people can follow and customize. Uh, do you think, I mean, this is getting into sort of more, um, well, for want of a better word, vague kind of uh, stuff, but, you know, globalization is not going away anytime soon. Um, but do you think we've seen kind of partly with this and partly with with, with COVID, um, the kind of limits of globalization in that we, we need to, you know, I'm always reminding people because so few people know anything about history that that free trade was was a was a something championed by the by the left back in the sort of 19th century. It wasn't a conservative yeah. uh, sort of policy. It was it came from the liberals because like well if you all rely on each other we can't go to war with each other. It's it's like this will bring peace in our time and you know. Uh, but at the same time we do, we've we've seen that there are genuine security concerns when you have a pandemic and you don't manufacture vaccines uh, or yeah. uh, there's some kind of domestic or international crisis and your, your borders are, are shut down. Uh, do you think that's something that we the governments kind of need to take on board now uh, at a more serious level? Like, uh, you know, this I'm not saying we're not going to trade with China or we're not going to trade with anywhere else, uh, but we are saying we need to have a certain – we need to sort of think more seriously about what we're manufacturing and what, what uh, what we have, that maybe we don't just have all our auto industry – foreign owned or you know um, yeah i don't know what do you think well first of all i don't know where that came from but your instincts are right okay i think that i think that you're smelling um what's cooking in the various kitchens around the world i'm a bit of an inter international trade geek uh 1992 maastricht treaty that created the european uh union and you know, uh, you know, uh, created the euro, uh, borderless in, uh, uh, economic superpower. The 1994 North American Free Trade Agreement, the 2000 entry of China into WTO, were those moments that said all our collective best interests are uh, a globalized trade. We saw that arc for 25 years. Um, yes, there's protectionism along the way, and a lot of the players within those treaties were rather protectionist. And some of them were, you know, advanced democracies in the world with incredible economies like Japan, very protectionist. But the trend was globalized. You know, Japan jumps on the board of globalization with this TPP. 12 countries were going to encircle China. The U.S. and Japan are the two main ones. And then uh, Mexico and Canada, and we're going to bring in Malaysia and, 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 uh, and Vietnam who are rising uh, Asian powers. And that one didn't go through and Trump got elected. And I think we saw the arc of international trade peak. The high spot in globalism was, uh, globalized trade was maybe 2015, Obama's last shot at the TPP. And I think the new NAFTA, the USMCA is protectionist, but it isn't protectionist for the US. It's protectionist for what the US sees as its most important um, adjacent markets. And so we're in kind of fortress North America, all the local content requirements in that went up. The, the protection over, uh, IP is extended. Uh, we are, uh, we saw the U S language in U S EU and U S, um, uh, Japan agreements start to mirror some of that. And we are entering an age where American lawmakers on both sides 
of the partisan divide agree on only one thing, is that the China surpassing the U.S.'s economic might is inevitable and that it's a problem and that we need to wake up to it with every single legislative tool that we have. So now we are going to see American-led protectionism in uh, Western markets. Of course, Europe is nobody's lackey, but they're also moving in that direction as well. Um, and then we're going, we'll see on the other sphere, China, and its incredible investment in developing uh, uh, markets around the world that the U.S. neglected. In the Caribbean, Central America, South America, Africa, the Middle East, Eastern Europe, Russia. And so I think what we're looking at is um, a, a, that arc of globalization peaking in 2015. I think we're going to have 25 years of more protectionist spheres of trading and influence. And we need, to, we need to know that we don't have a choice in Canada. You don't pick sides when one side is geographically adjacent and 10 times your market and a, and a place where we've been selling goods profitably and sharing a prosperity for 150 years. Does it mean that we don't trade with China? I don't think there's any way you can't trade with China, but I think that we can't be naive. And I'll say naivete here, uh, you know, we're not talking about just you know, Joel, Roland, Flavio. In 2016, the federal government decided that when we were going into a renegotiation of NAFTA that nobody asked for, we started down the path of, well, let's start a trade agreement discussion with, free trade agreement discussion with China. And I said then, on the record, you can search it. We're in a pretty uncharted water of trying to negotiate a free trade access, freer trade access to the two world's two biggest economic superpowers who don't say eye to eye. I'm not sure how this is going to end well. And um, I believe the Chinese played chess with us on, uh, sorry, the Americans played chess with us on uh, on uh, asking us to arrest the CFO of Huawei on a flight manifest that included Mexico City and Vancouver. I'm sure somebody in Washington at USTR or in the White House said, well, if we're going to, if we're going to make this move, Aren't the Canadians trying to leverage uh, Canada-China agreement against us during a NAFTA negotiation? Um, That's very interesting. Let's have, them, <laughs> yeah, let's have them pick her up in Vancouver. They could have, she could have been picked up in Mexico City. And, and we all know the history after that. Well, you know what? I think we're going to leave it at that because we're coming up on our, on our time limit. But uh, Flavio, it's always a pleasure to, uh, to have you on and to talk. Uh, talk cars, talk shop, talk politics you know you're you're a, you're a renaissance man for uh coming on the podcast <laughs> <laughs> i i love the format guys and 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 to be honest i think uh the fact that it's free flowing here is an indication of just how important this region is uh uh not, not just to ontario but you know a lot of stuff happens here that is important for canada and that we understand that we're not independent of the rest of the world and a lot of those those you know, a lot of the implications of the decisions that are made in Ottawa uh, are informed in the 905, and they have a real effect on the 905. And um, I think we need to look at ourselves like that and not just at um, our neighborhood. We are global players in this region, and other players in the globe see us as that. And I really think we could probably do a better job as a community of looking in the mirror and saying, uh, I matter. And so I better take some thoughtful positions because if I don't, somebody will take them for me. Thoughtful positions, I think, is, uh, yeah, that's a good tattoo. <laughs> <laughs> How long is your arm? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, well, thanks so much, uh, Flavio. 
Yeah, sure, guys. Thanks for having me. That's it for this episode of the 905er. Thank you for listening. As always, you can send us your feedback, thoughts, and concerns, or ideas for future episodes to our email, info at 905er.ca. We'd love to hear from you. You can help us keep the 905er going by financially supporting us through Patreon as well as PayPal. Visit us at 905er.ca and click on the support tab. As well, links are in the show notes for your convenience. Lastly, you can find us on social media. Search for the underscore 905er on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. So long for now. See you next time. leadership show called The Boiling Point with my co-host, Dave Vale. Together, we sit down with trailblazing entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and movement makers who are driving meaningful change in our world. The show is all about exploring the lives and perspectives of leaders who are making a difference. Join us for insightful conversations that challenge the status quo, spark new ideas, and inspire you to take action. Find us on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or at BoilingPointPodcast.com.